This program is made possible by BibleWayMedia.org, overseen by the Uloga Church of Christ in Uloga, Oklahoma. You're listening to Opening the Scriptures with Don Boyd. Welcome to the program today. This is Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ. I want to thank you for tuning in to Opening the Scriptures. We're going to continue in our studies in the book of Job today, and we're going to be in Job chapter 40. Now, God had asked Job many different questions about the laws of the universe, the actions of the constellations, the sun, moon, and stars, questions about the controlling of the oceans and what's found in the oceans, what is it like in the world of the dead, then about the actions of animals and birds, all of which Job had no answer. Now, remember, Job has not condemned God But he dwelt on the attitude that he deserved an answer from God on why he was suffering so much. Well, God is showing Job that we, as human beings, have no right to question what God does or how he does it. God runs the universe, not us. God is in control of the universe, not us. In class notes on the book of Job, Dave Miller wrote this or stated this, and I quote, We must monitor our attitudes, actions, and thoughts until eternity. God is giving Job a loving attitude adjustment. We are so self-centered, unquote. Well, God now gets Job's attention based on the questions that he has asked thus far. In verse 1 of Job chapter 40, God continues his argument to reply to the attitude that Job had so frequently showed in what he said. In verse 1 it says, Moreover the Lord answered Job and said. The Bible illustrator makes this comment, and I quote, Job is not even told the purpose of the fiery trial through which he himself is passed, of those in other worlds and his own who have watched his pangs. No, God reveals to him his glory and makes him feel where he had gone wrong, how presumptuous he had been. That is all. Here, God does not say, All this has been a trial of thy righteousness. Thou hast been fighting a battle against Satan for me and hast received many sore wounds. Nothing is said of the truth already noted and enforced in this book that suffering does its perfect work when it purifies and elevates the human soul and draws it nearer to the God who sins or permits the suffering. In Job chapter 40, verse 2, God challenges Job about the foolishness of trying to criticize, correct, or argue with such a great power as God. Job 40, verse 2. Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. In other words, Job, do you want to complain your, uh, continue your complaint against God? If so, answer 
Job, you have said that you have a controversy with me and presume to instruct me, God is saying. Job, if you are ready to argue your case with me, are you now ready to answer? So God is giving Job some very pointed questions here. Well, in verses 3 to 5, Job accepts God's greatness and he is humbled. In verses 3 and 4, Job realizes that what he had said, the things he had said were rash, things he should never have thought or said. Job 40, verses 3 and 4. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. The word vile there, we said I am vile from the Hebrew word kalal. Brown Driver Briggs defines that word this way. To be slight, be swift, be trifling, be of little account, be light. Albert Barnes makes this comment, and I quote, he had argued boldly with his friends. He had there uh, before them maintained his innocence of the charges which they brought against him and had supposed that he would be able to maintain the same argument before God. But when the opportunity was given, he felt that he was a poor, weak man, a guilty and miserable offender. It is a very different thing to maintain our cause before God from what it is to maintain it before people, unquote. Dave Miller, again in the Job class, made this comment, and I quote, Wallowing in self-pity is destructive. Job is still in the throes of heartache and suffering. He does not focus on self anymore, his attention is on God. Dwelling on God is the antidote for selfishness. He has no defense before God, unquote. Well, Job says in verse 5 of chapter 40 that he will not try to justify himself before God any longer. Not even going to try. Job 40, verse 5. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer, yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. Albert Barnes says this again, and I quote, He now saw that God was right, that he himself had repeatedly indulged in an improper spirit, and that all that became him was a penitent confession in the fewest words possible, unquote. You see, Job used few words here, like in the parable there of the Pharisee and the publican that Jesus gave in Luke chapter 18. So let's turn over to Luke chapter 18, and let's look at that parable. And we'll notice the difference there between the prayer of the Pharisee and the prayer of the publican. Beginning in verse 9, again Luke chapter 18, it says, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. 
Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now notice the publican's comments in his prayer. Verse 13. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The publican had few words there, but Jesus said in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. You think about it, Job had exalted himself, and now God has humbled him there in the discussion that he's having with God. So Job had said too much, he said, and he would say no more. Well, God continues to question Job to help him understand the true nature of God. And that is in verses 6 through 14. In verse 6, God responds to what Job said. It says, Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind and said. So apparently Job still had a ways to go, and God is not through with him yet. Albert Barnes says this, and I quote, God here resumes the argument which had been interrupted in order to give Job an opportunity to speak and to carry his cause before the Almighty as he had desired. See Job 40, verse 2. Since Job had nothing to say, the argument which had been suspended is resumed and completed, unquote. In verse 7 of Job chapter 40, God says, Job, prepare for our meeting. God says there in verse 7, Gird up thy loins now like a man. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. Well, in other words, Job, prepare your highest effort that you can make against me and explain what I am about to say. Job, I'm going to ask you some questions. See if you can answer them. You need to give me satisfactory answers to my questions to show me the proofs of your wisdom. Well, Job had requested this confrontation. You go back to Job chapter 23, look at verses 1 through 4. Job 23, verses 1 through 4. Then Job answered and said, Even today is my complaint bitter, my stroke is heavier than my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. And then going to verse 4, I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. In verse 5, Joe said, I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say unto me. So Job requested the confrontation. 
but he's not getting what he asked for. Or they got what he asked for, but he's not getting in the way that he thought it would be. In chapter 40, verse 8, God says, Job, are you going to discredit my justice? Chapter 40, verse 8. Will thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? The American Standard Version says, justified. Job had accused God of treating him unjustly. Back in Job chapter 9, look at verse 17. Job chapter 9, verse 17. It says, For he breaketh me with a tempest, and multiplieth my wounds without cause. So Job is saying God is not treating him in a just way. Well, Albert Barnes makes the comment concerning Job 40, verse 8, and I quote, Job had allowed himself to use language which strongly implied that God was improperly severe. He had regarded himself as punished far beyond what he deserved and as suffering in a manner which justice did not demand. All this implied that he was more righteous in the case than God. For when a man allows himself to vent such complaints, it indicates that he esteems himself to be more just than his maker, unquote. And Job had done that, as we already read. So, in verse 9, God says, Do you have the power of God, Job? Verse 9, Hast thou an arm like God, or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? The word arm there is a symbol of strength. So God is asking Job, how does your strength compare to God's? The word thunder is a symbol of the Most High God. And then he says, Job, how does your voice compare to God's? Let's go to Psalm and look at Psalm, book of Psalms and look at Psalm 29, talking about the thunder here. Psalm 29, and also God's strength. Give unto the Lord, O ye mighty, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. Yea, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. He maketh them also to skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a young unicorn or wild ox. The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shaketh the wilderness. The Lord shaketh the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord maketh the hinds to calve, and discovereth the forest. And in his temple doth everyone speak of his glory. 
the Lord sitteth upon the flood, yea, the Lord sitteth king forever. The Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. But as we read through that psalm, we see the power of God, the strength of God, what the voice of God is able to do. And again, going back to Genesis chapter 1, God said, let there be this and that and that and on and on there, and it happened. God's voice is powerful. Now, back in Job chapter 40 in verse 10, God says to Job, Job, clothe yourself in excellency, honor, majesty, and glory. Job 40 verse 10. Deck thyself now with majesty and excellency and array thyself with glory and beauty. Albert Barnes makes this comment concerning verse 10, and I quote, That is, such as God has, put on everything which you can, which would indicate rank, wealth, power, and see if it could all be compared with the majesty of God. Compare Psalm 104.1, which says, O Lord my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty. Unquote. And then in verse 11 of Job 40, God says, Job, when you clothe yourself in this way, then act as God does against the proud. Job 40, verse 11. <clears throat> Cast abroad the rage of thy wrath, and behold everyone that is proud, and abase him. So, in other words, God is saying, Job, try being God for a while. Deal with the proud. Bring them down. Prove your ability. In verse 12, God says, Job, crush the proud and the wicked with your foot. Job 40, verse 12. Look on everyone that is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Well, the word or the phrase tread down comes from the Hebrew word hadak, which Strong says means to crush with the foot. So Job, crush the wicked with your foot. John Gill says concerning this verse, and I quote, Now Job is bid when he has brought proud men low and laid their honor in the dust to keep them there and to trample upon them and tread them as mire in the street and that in their place or wherever he should find them, unquote. In verse 13, God says, Job, cast the proud and the wicked into the dust of the grave. Job 40, verse 13. Hide them in the dust together and bind their faces in secret. Adam Clark makes this comment concerning verse 13, and I quote, this seems to refer to the custom of preserving mummies. The whole body is wrapped round with strong swathings of linen or cloth or cotton cloth. Not only the limbs, but the very head, face, and all. 
are rolled round with strong filleting, so that not one feature can be seen, not even the protuberance of the nose. On the outside of these involutions, a human face is ordinarily painted, but as to the real face itself, it is emphatically bound in secret, for those rollers are never intended to be removed, unquote. So in other words, God is telling Job, Job, just, just do the things that God does. Just do the things that God does. In verse 14, God says, Job, when you can do all of that, then I will confess how great you are. Job 40, verse 14. Then will I also confess unto thee that thine own right hand can save thee. So Job, if you are that great, you don't need God because you're just as powerful and wise as God is. And Job, if you are that powerful, you are an independent power that deserves your time in court with God. So prove it. Well, in verses 15 to 24, God uses the example of a great land animal to further humble Job. Well, in, other, in verse 15, God says, Job, consider the behemoth, one of your fellow creatures. Job 40, 15. Behold now behemoth, which I made with thee, he eateth grass as an ox. So this behemoth, it comes from the Hebrew word behemoth. The translators here of the King James Version didn't know what animal to call it, so they just transliterated the word. Well, Brown Driver Briggs gives this definition to the word behemoth. Perhaps an extinct dinosaur, a diplodocus or brachiosaurus, exact meaning unknown. Well, the first discovery of a dinosaur fossil was made by Dr. Gideon Mantell in 1822, who identified a large tooth as belonging to a huge reptilian creature he called an iguanodon. Since that time, fossil hunters have discovered many fascinating creatures of all different shapes and sizes. And you think about it, people were shocked and surprised to learn that such huge animals once existed. By 1841, a man by the name of Richard Owen was convinced that there had been at one time several large lizard-like reptiles that once lived. He decided to name them dinosaurs. The word dinosaur is a combination of two Greek words, dinos, which means fearful or monstrous, and saurus, which means lizard. Now, you'll notice that God there said in verse 15, Behold now behemoth, which I made with thee. And he also says, Behold behemoth. If you can behold the behemoth, then that behemoth is a creature that was still there in the days of Job. Verse 16, 
Well, whatever you think about it, and I brought up the word dinosaur when it was invented there in 1841 for a reason. You don't find the word dinosaur in the King James Version of the Bible because it was translated before the word dinosaur was even invented. But do we find dinosaurs in the Bible? Yes, we do. Right here, the behemoth is one of them. Now, I want to go back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 through 27. Genesis 1, 24 through 27. And this is the sixth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over the earth, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And we look down in verse 31, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So, according to Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 to 27, man and behemoth were created on the same day. Now, the word cattle here, in chapter, Genesis chapter 1, verses 24, and also verse 25 and 26, also comes from the Hebrew word that is singular of behemoth. And that word is behemoth. It means beast, cattle, or animal, according to Brown Driver Briggs. Now, to help explain this, Wayne Jackson, on page 85 of his work, The Book of Job, made this comment, and I quote, Note on behemoth. The word behemoth is the plural form of beast, but in the context of Job 40, it is used with singular verbs and pronouns, and so is regarded as a plural of intensity meaning great beast, unquote. Well, so we have this great beast here. Now, notice the characteristics of this great beast. We see in verse 15, he eateth grass as an ox. In verse 16, this beast is exceedingly strong with great muscles. It says, Lo now, his strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. The American Standard Version says the muscles of his belly. In verse 17, this beast moves its tail like a cedar tree, and its powerful thighs are closely knit. Verse 17, he moveth his tail like a cedar the sinews of his stones or his thighs are wrapped or knit together. And again, the word thighs and the word knit there come from the American Standard Version. 
in verse 18. Its bones are as strong as pieces of copper and iron. Job 40, 18. His bones are as strong pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. The word translated brass here is nakusha. And it means, according to Brown Driver Briggs, copper, bronze. Copper made from melting copper ore, or bronze made from copper and an alloy. So it's probably bronze or copper here that we're looking at in this verse. In Job 40, verse 19, this beast, it says, is chief in the ways of God in size and strength, and only God has power over it. Verse 19, he is the chief of the ways of God. He that made him can make his sword to approach unto him. In verse 20, it says the plants of the whole mountains are required to furnish its food. Verse 20, surely the mountains bring him forth food where all the beasts of the field play. In verses 21 and 22, this beast rests in the shade of the trees beside the streams. Verses 21 and 22. He lieth under the shady trees in the covert of the reed and fence. The shady trees cover him with their shadow. The willows of the brook compass him about. In verse 23, this beast is not alarmed if a river overflows even up to its mouth. Verse 23, Behold, he drinketh up a river and hasteth not. He trusteth that he can draw up Jordan into his mouth. And then in verse 24, No one can take it when it is on watch or pierce its nose with a snare. He taketh it with his eyes. His nose pierceth through snares. All right, whenever you look at verse, oh, we'll go back and look at verse 23 in the American Standard Version. It says, if a river overflows, he trembles not. He is confident, though Jordan swell even to his mouth. So they were around the Jordan River. Gives us a little insight there. And then in verse 24, I want to read to you the American Standard Version. It says, shall any take him when he is on watch or pierce through his nose with a snare? The literal translation says, Shall any take him before his eyes or pierce his nose with snares? Young's literal translation says, Before his eyes doth one take him. With snares doth one pierce his nose? In other words, these are questions. So this is an incredible animal. But what is it or what was it? Well, Albert Barnes states his opinion. He says a great variety of opinions has been entertained in regard to the animal referred to here, though the main inquiry has related to the question whether the elephant or the hippopotamus is denoted. So Barnes is saying maybe it's an elephant, maybe it's a hippopotamus. Adam Clark, in his commentary, says this, quote, 
Mr. Good supposes, and I'm of the same opinion, that the animal here described is now extinct. The skeletons of three lost genre have actually been found out. These have been termed Paleotherium and Apolotherium. Maybe I pronounced that right. And Mastodon or Mammoth, unquote. So Adam Clark says maybe this animal is a Mastodon or a Mammoth. Well, Wayne Jackson, on page pages 85 and 86 of his book, made this comment, and I quote, Some have identified it as an elephant, but the most common identification is that of the hippopotamus, even though many of the descriptive details do not seem to fit the hippopotamus. More recently, some scholars have suggested that some species of dinosaur may better fit the picture, though this view has not been readily accepted due to the fact that many people have accepted the evolutionary notion that dinosaurs became extinct millions of years before man arrived on the planet. However, with more evidence coming to light that men and dinosaurs were contemporary, some form of dinosaur, such as the Brontosaurus, may be a viable possibility, unquote. Well, he's mentioning the Brontosaurus here. There for a long time, the Brontosaurus was thought to have been an Apatosaurus, just, you know, just different sizes or whatever. But in 2015, the Brontosaurus was determined to be a, a different species from the Apatosaurus. And Wikipedia gives this information about Brontosaurus. Brontosaurus, meaning thunder lizard, from Greek thunder and lizard, is a genus of giant quadruped sauropod dinosaurs. Brontosaurus had a long, thin neck and a small head adapted for a herbivorous lifestyle, a bulky, heavy torso, and a long, whip-like tail, unquote. From www.enchantedlearning.com on the word dinosaurs, it makes this comment, and I quote, Brontosaurus was one of the largest land animals that ever existed. This enormous plant eater measured about 70 to 90 feet long and about 15 feet tall at the hips. It weighed roughly 33 to 38 tons. It also mentions Diplodocus was up to 171 feet long and weighed up to 250,000 pounds. The Brachiosaurus was up to 69 feet long and weighed up to 128,000 pounds. Now, does the dinosaur then better fit the description of the animal in Job 40 than an elephant, a hippopotamus, or a mammoth? That's the question. Wayne Jackson on page 86 of his book wrote this, and I quote, 
In Rhodesia, there are cave paintings of the ancient Brontosaurus left by a race of tribesmen who lived about 1500 B.C. The hippo has a short, slim tail which hardly fits the description he moves his tail like a cedar. The Brontosaurus has a massive, long tail. Its description as chief or largest of the works of God more nearly fits the Brontosaurus at 30 tons than the hippopotamus 4 tons. Behemoth dare not be approached with a sword, verse 19b. Yet the Egyptian monuments frequently picture single hunters attacking the hippo with a spear. No man was able to capture behemoth, but representations of the capture of the hippopotamus are common in Egyptian art. Those are all comments there from Wayne Jackson's book. So what is what does God what is God doing here? God is comparing himself to human beings, Joe specifically in this case. He's saying, what is your power compared to mine? Do you have a voice like mine? What is your greatness compared to mine? What is your wrath compared to mine? What can you do with a behemoth, Job? You need to be humble and stop contending with me. God specifically will mention another huge animal, an ocean-dwelling chapter, there in verse 41. But before we get to looking at chapter 41, we want to look at some notes on dinosaurs. Does the dinosaur fit? Did humans and dinosaurs live together? That's the question. Well, the only animal that fits the description of the behemoth there is a dinosaur. The mammoth did not have a tail like a cedar. The elephant doesn't have a tail like a cedar. The hippopotamus doesn't have a tail like a cedar, but dinosaurs do. So that means that dinosaurs and humans live together at the same time, unlike what evolutionary, the hypothesis of evolution tries to teach. Now, there are pictures and drawings that men have made on dinosaurs. You can do a Google, a Google search and find these pictures of dinosaurs. You know, there are dinosaur drawings that ancient men have drawn, and you can look at these pictures. There's one I see here of a pterodactyl, one of something like a, a patasaurus, another one having long spikes on its back like a stegosaurus, another one uh, again like a brontosaurus or something like that. And you can find many of those. But I want to look at a specific one here. And that's Dr. Samuel Hubbard, Honorary Curator of Archaeology of the Oakland Museum, visited the area of the Grand Canyon known as the Havasupai Canyon two times in the late 1800s. Hubbard made his third trip to the canyon in 1924. He found carvings of an ibex, an elephant, and a dinosaur. Hubbard wrote, quote, the fact that some prehistoric man made a pictograph of a dinosaur on the walls of this canyon upsets completely all of our theories regarding the antiquity of man. 
the fact that the animal is upright and balanced on his tail, or its tail, would seem to indicate the prehistoric artist must have seen it alive, unquote. That comment comes from Dinosaurs Unleashed on pages 48 and 49. And you can see a picture of that drawing. You can go online and do that as well. There's another picture that I found online of a fellow being eaten by a dinosaur in a uh, art car uh, rock carving there. And then at Natural Bridges National Monument in southeastern Utah, on the underside of the third largest natural bridge in the world, there are petroglyphs or rock drawing, rock carvings that are believed to be from 500 to 1500 years old. So we're looking after, what, 500 A.D. They are believed to be the work of the Anasazi Indians that once lived there. And in these, in these petroglyphs, a mountain goat, a human figure, multiple handprints, and many other carvings and drawings can easily or be seen easily underneath the bridge on both sides of its span. But the most fascinating carving is that of a dinosaur on the right span about 10 feet off the ground. Now, there are those that try to call that thing a horse, but if you look at the picture there, that, that uh, carving, that is either an apatosaurus or a brontosaurus or something, and there's also a carving of a man up there not very far from it. There are also dinosaur engravings. The Khmer civilization once flourished in the Southeast Asia territory of Angkor. The Hindu and Buddhist kings of the 8th through 13th centuries AD built majestic stone temples. In 1186 AD, King uh, Javavarman, something like that, began building the temple of Taprom, which ruins stand today in the jungles of Cambodia. There are intricately carved statues of stone columns that fill the, the Cambodia. There are, oh, me, there are intricately carved stones, statues and stones that fill the temple monastery. There are animals, people, gods, plants, and many other decorative images carved on these columns. One of the columns is a column that has uh, is a carving that has a striking resemblance to a stegosaurus. And you can go online and look at that and you see that that carving is a stegosaurus. There is no other animal that would fit. And this is from 1186 AD, long before dinosaur fossils were found. The Carlisle Cathedral in England was founded in the 12th century, and you can go look up the Carlisle uh, Cathedral there. You can see a picture of it online. Richard Bell was one of the bishops, so-called bishops, of Carlisle in the 15th century. Records show that he served in that position for 17 years and resigned in 1495 and died in 1496. His body was laid to rest in a tomb along the main aisle inside the cathedral. On the edge of Bell's 500-year-old tomb is a narrow 
strip of brass on which various animals were engraved, including a bird, fish, a dog, and a pig, and there are also two animals that have long necks and long tails that resemble dinosaurs. 1496. Oh, remember, Columbus discovered, or so-called discovered America in 1492. So what do you think? Dinosaurs still in existence in the 1400s? How could someone engrave these dinosaurs in brass 300 years before dinosaur fossils were found? There are also dinosaur figurines that were found in Mexico. In 1945, archaeologist Valdemar Jusrud discovered clay figurines buried at the foot of El Toro Mountain on the outskirts of Acambaro, Mexico. Eventually, over 33,000 ceramic figures were found in the area and identified with the pre-classical Chipicuaro culture, which lasted from 800 B.C. to 200 A.D. Among his finds were figurines that were lifelike poses of dinosaurs. Dr. Ivan T. Sanderson was amazed in 1955 to find that there was an accurate representation of a brachiosaurus almost totally unknown to the general public at that time. Sanderson wrote, quote, This figurine is a very fine, jet black, polished looking wear. It is about a foot tall. The point is that it is an absolutely perfect representation of Brachiosaurus known only from East Africa and North America. There are a number of outlines of the skeletons in the standard literature, but only one fleshed out reconstruction that I have ever seen. This is exactly like it, unquote. And you can read that from Dinosaurs Unleashed on pages 50 and 51. And you can go to the internet on a Google search and type in Dinosaur Figurines Mount Altoro and you will find those pictures. You will see that they are very lifelike. Some are, they're all standing up. Some reared up on their hind legs. Well, <clears throat> there were human prints and dinosaur footprints found together at the Paluxy River in Texas. And these come from uh, the book Dinosaurs there by uh, Ball. And you can look that up. It's a very fascinating book. But he has a couple of pictures in there. And one caption is, In June 1982, Dr. Wilson and Cliff Nickmeyer points to a dinosaur and human footprints only seven and a half inches apart. They were recovered under 12 feet of limestone with the press watching. And in another caption here of another picture, Dr. Ball shows that in this case, the dinosaur and human footprints were spaced about 18 inches apart. So dinosaur and human footprints found together. And again, you might recall that other one was found under 12 feet of limestone with the press watching. These weren't things that were just dug in there to be a farce. These are true. 
There are burial stones that were found in Ica, Peru, beginning in the 1930s. Ica, Peru is on the west coast of Peru. And Dr. Javier Cabrera started collecting the stones in the 1930s and collected most of the 11,000 Ica stones that are now in the Ica Stone Museum in Ica, Peru. And you can get these pictures off the internet. And depicted on these stones are what appear to be relics of an ancient Indian culture that predates the Incas. Many of the carved stones show mundane scenes that can be expected in any ancient culture, but some of the stones show humans in close contact with dinosaurs. And you can see that on, there's one there of a man riding a triceratops. That's from Dinosaurs Unleashed on page 52. And then there are two others there, or two other pictures that you can find on the internet, and there are others as well. One of them has a dinosaur, a meat-eating dinosaur, right behind a man that has a hold of him. And there's another one with a picture of a man being held in the mouth of a meat-eating dinosaur. So how could these things be found in the 1930s to be so realistic? Well, the proofs that man and dinosaur live together shows the evolutionary time scale to be totally inaccurate and the Bible to be true. The Bible always is consistent and agrees with true science. So the behemoth there in Job chapter 40, if somebody tries to say there are no dinosaurs in the Bible, yes, there are. One is mentioned here in Job chapter 40, and as I said, there will be another giant, magnificent animal mentioned in Job chapter 41. And what an amazing animal. We're going to get into some more proofs that man and, animal, uh, man and dinosaurs live together as well. So we're going to bring the lesson to an end there today. And we'll, Lord willing, start in Job chapter 41 next time. So again, this is Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ. I want to thank you for tuning in with us today. And we look forward to being with you next time. When you're in Moody, Missouri, you're invited to visit the Moody Church of Christ located on Highway E in Moody, Missouri. The congregation there meets on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for Bible class, 11 a.m. for worship, and then again at 6 p.m. for Sunday evening worship. They also meet at 6 p.m. on Wednesday night for Bible study. We thank you for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this program. You can find out more about Bible Media by visiting us at BibleWayMedia.org. You can also find us on several uh, social media platforms now. You can find us not only on Facebook, but you can also can find us on Tumblr. You can also find us on the Twitter alternative known as Telegram and on the Facebook alternative known as MeWe. We hope you enjoyed this program. We hope you will share with others. And as always, we thank you for listening.